From war across the globe to regulating speech to printing trillions of dollars, the American regime accepts no limits on its power. As Ludwig von Mises understood, the state will take as much power as the people will let it. And in recent years, the American regime has clearly concluded it can get away with unilaterally adopting vast new powers. Join Michael Rechtenwald, Ted Galen Carpenter, Jonathan Newman, and more for a Mises Institute event in Nashville, Tennessee on September 23rd, dedicated to this siege of power and one of Ron Paul's favorite lines, truth is treason in the empire of lies. Tickets begin at $95. Get yours at Mises.org Nashville 23. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash Nashville 23. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. David, welcome to the Human Action Podcast. Thanks for having me, Bob. So what's interesting is I had asked on Twitter uh, about Fed now because the, the progression folks, and we'll probably circle back and get fill in some of this, but I had had recently George Gammon on talking about the dangers of a CBDC and specifically how it might not come in the front door, it might come through the back. And then people were saying, well, Bob, this Fed now thing just launched. You should probably talk about that. So on Twitter, I asked, hey, and then one of our own, David stepped forward and he said, well, I just wrote something for Mises.org on this. And so... Uh, of course, folks will link to that at the show notes page if you want to read more. But that's the the reason we have you on here, David. So for, for one thing, what what is Fed now? With all these things, there's lots of people. I'm sure they heard about it, but they never took the time to go click through, and now they don't want to look dumb. So what for people who don't know, what is Fed now? So first off, I would say it's it's pretty reasonable to have concerns about Fed now, right? Like it's this whole new system where a lot of people aren't familiar with the mechanics of everything. So it's reasonable to have some concerns without knowing a lot about it. But I think that it becomes a little less scary, I think, once you really understand what it is. And Fed now is really just a, a clearinghouse mechanism, really. It's a payment system. So Typically, the Federal Reserve has operated off of Fedwire since I think about 1970, or at least the modern iteration of Fedwire. And what happens is you get payments back and forth between banks, typically funds, you know, overnight loans and the like, as well as the Fed automatic clearinghouse, which is kind of like, you know, um, a clearinghouse mechanism where you have, you know, net payments. And then after the end of the day, banks transfer like the net mounts to each other bank. Uh, but Fed now is just kind of like a sped up version of Fed of the of the Fed uh, automatic clearinghouse. It's like Fed wire in that it's instantaneously. Um, it charges fees. It's through the Federal Reserve System, of course. Uh, but it, it really is just a 24-7, 365 system for payments. So you could say theoretically, if I was sending you some money through Fed now, I would go to I would go to like say I'm going to your store, I'm buying a copy of choice and my bank is going to connect to the Federal Reserve System to, through FedNow, which is then going to connect to your banking institution. It's going to confirm that, hey, this is a transaction that's happening. And then you're gonna, it's going to confirm for you. You're going to get that within about 20 seconds. Then it's going to reconfirm with my bank, for example. So it's really just a really fast mechanism. 
it's not necessarily a central bank digital currency like a lot of people say. And you can obviously have some concerns about, like George said in that last episode that I watched, um, about like these backdoor methods to getting a central bank digital currency. That's a warranted fear, and there's a lot of privacy concerns that can come with that. But I don't think this is quite a central bank digital currency yet. Okay, yeah. So let's unpack all those things. But so big picture, the reason they call it Fed now is because the the ostensible purpose is to have it so that oh great I got a feline behind me get out of here all right um, the ostensible purpose of it is to allow for instantaneous transact because right now there's a whole class of transactions in the existing financial infrastructure in the U.S. banking system where oh if something happens on Friday at seven p.m. it's got to wait till Monday morning in order to get processed. And yeah. This, yeah. And so um, and, and as you say, again, so this is now the other aspect of your article that I really liked is it's not that you're saying, oh, you rah, rah, Fed now is an awesome thing. We're not. But, you know, so there are some issues. But what you're trying to clarify is the people who are worried that, oh, wait a minute, they've been talking about a CBDC, which is a central bank digital currency, folks. And now there's this new Fed now thing. And so I'm thinking that's what this is. Right. And you're arguing that, you know, let Yes, there are reasons we might want to be opposed to or be suspicious of this Fed now thing, but it's really not per se a central bank digital currency. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a central bank digital currency yet. It's not. Individuals can't have accounts through Fed now, so I can't I can't send a transaction from myself directly to you. I have to go through a banking institution still. So there's these different ledgers like George was talking about in your episode. Uh, so you still have these differences. It's still a little bit more decentralized than, say, a central bank digital, reta- like a retail central bank digital currency, where each individual would have an account at the Fed, and then they would have their, they would essentially, all of their currency would be a liability of the central bank. So it's it's not quite there yet. One can make an argument that it's defa- a de facto wholesale one where it's just between the banks and the Fed because, you know, uh, the vast majority of everything is just accounts, uh, like numbers on the Fed's master accounts. Yeah, I'm trying. Do you have it in front of you? Because um, you even quoted from the Federal Reserve itself that, that was talking about the issue of having like liabilities on the Fed's books and that being yes. a criterion. Do, do you have that so- in front of you? I don't have the article right in front of me, but I do know what you're referencing, that the Fed published a policy paper, which I'm, I, I, have to, I would have to go back and check and see if it correlates with when Biden issued an executive order to kind of look into digital assets mm-hmm. and everything. So they have a policy paper on central bank digital currencies, and they talk about what are the possible benefits of these, what would we want to consider. They talk a lot about how they want to keep cash available. So essentially, they're talking a little bit more about a wholesale central bank digital currency, and then they also talk about how they don't have the ability to give individuals accounts at the Federal Reserve legally. They, they don't have that ability. Of course, the Fed could do it illegally and then get an act of Congress to retroactively patch up their mistake. Uh, but l- technically, they legally cannot do that. They have uh, only bank and financial institutions can have a master Fed account, for example. And they Powell has specifically said in Senate hearings that they wouldn't go for it with a central bank digital currency without congressional approval. I think that's like his exact quote there that it, it wouldn't be okay, yeah, without I, a congressional approval. Yeah, I, I, so you, you um, yeah, I find it funny. You see a CBDC as defined by the Federal Reserve itself, and you have a link to thing would be a quote money that is a liability of the central bank. That was that was what I was trying to isolate. And so as you say, David, that what Fed now does, and again, I want to you know 
in a minute, let's go through carefully and, and see like what are the issues with this thing. But for strictly speaking, for it to be a central bank digital currency, as the Fed says, as George Gammon argued, and then I think as you and I agree with this assessment that it's it's got to be that, um, you know what 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 is it about Bitcoin or whatever that makes it like a decentralized payment system? It's that everyone's got their own accounts, and you know you have multiple ones in terms of addresses, and that's how it's you know you're moving bitcoins or satoshis, the smallest unit, from your address to somebody else's address. So the idea is that each person has to have their own account, let's call it, for lack of a better term. And so the analog for that for a central bank digital currency would be that each person, you know, has effectively their own checking account with the Fed. And then every time you make a payment, it's just on the Fed's books. And it could be electronic. It's not like they actually have a printed ledger. They're just transferring stuff from one account to the other. And so what you're saying is even the Fed's agreeing that this is not, that's not what the Fed now is. Individuals cannot have accounts. It's not that, oh, because you know you you paid for something on a Saturday on the Federal Reserve's computer ledger, they transfer stuff from you know David's account over to Bob Murphy's account. That's not going to happen because we don't have such accounts with the Fed. It's still going through the commercial banking system. Yeah, it's still going through the commercial banking system, and that kind of reminded me of a conversation that I think Saifedean Amos had. I, I'm probably mispronouncing his name. I apologize. Uh, where he talks, where he kind of tries to put the the fiat standard as he would dub it right from his book into kind of like the bitcoin lens and then each bank would kind of be like considered like a bitcoin node right i'm obviously not the most informed on the technology of bitcoin uh but yeah there's still a decentralized aspect to fed now where you still have to have these banking institutions if it was a central bank digital currency we wouldn't have fed now really we would have a they would start concentrating banks into the Federal Reserve. Um, I know George argued that they might still use banks in a sort of intermediary for loans, uh, but you would see you wouldn't have tra- payment systems through the Fed like this, really, because you have to. Th- if if all of the money is like on the, at the Fed, right, like with a central bank digital currency, then there's no reason to have this payment system that they also charge for. It's not a free system, so they can't do it just instantaneously for free. So they they still have to transfer funds between accounts. And the the fact that these accounts exist and then are separate, they might include part of your account shows that it's still a little bit decentralized. Right, right. Um okay. And then I guess can we talk a little bit about um wh- I had heard somebody raise the objection and so it's this kind of dovetails into what you're talking about right there David that People saying it's not going to be we don't need to worry about a central bank digital currency because the private banks are not going to allow it. Like, you know, they they own the Federal Reserve, like legally speaking, in the United States. And uh, ultimately, a CBDC would just cut them out of the action. So it's kind of crazy that, you know, they wouldn't be developing something that gives all this power. Admittedly, you know, we all agree in this conversation that a central bank digital currency would be a bad idea for numerous reasons, including privacy concerns. But they're saying, why the, Why would the private banks do that? That just completely cuts them out of it. So I'm wondering, do you have a, a take on that? I know that's not directly what your article is about, but I'm just curious if you have no, a take I, on that. I actually did have an article published by Tim Pool's news agency a little while back, mm-hmm. which kind of touches on the same subject on why I don't think, at least while Powell is in office, that I don't think a central bank digital currency will happen while he's in charge of the Fed. And then I kind of use that argument a little bit where uh, the bank's 
have this incentive to kind of like I I view it ultimately it's like the best Ponzi scheme they have in the world that they don't functionally need to have like a central bank digital currency to do all the things that we we are naturally afraid of right like if they want to track purchases like you can look there are articles where Visa and Mastercard are have little tracking codes on their on purchases for firearms like they're going to start to do that. Like, they have the ability to track your payments mm. if they really want to. They just have to go through MasterCard and Visa. And why would MasterCard and Visa want to give up that power, right? Like, they can get money from the banks by giving them this information. So that's another interest you can throw in there. And then there's also the fact that they have access to money creation. They're, they're no longer they, – they want to be, have the ability to create credit, which we know obviously can cause business cycles. But they, they like that ability because that, it gives them a little bit more power and control over everything. So it's like – it's I, I view it as they have a they have a, a good system right now. They're cronyists, but I wouldn't call them like, you know, the technocratic communists. You might call the Davos types. Yeah. OK, uh, uh, fair enough. And I, yeah, I suppose if I had to guess, I think it's and I'm not just trying to be wishy washy and, you know, cater to all sides. But I think it is going to be somewhere in the middle where you're going to see these consolidation trends continue where, you know, the, the smaller regional banks are, yeah. I think, through various re- for for various reasons are going to be uh, lose popularity. People are going to take their deposits out and go to like the big behemoths. And so over time, if the public's checking accounts get concentrated in fewer and fewer overarching institutions, which then have their master accounts with the Fed, and um, and you're right, like in terms of the monitoring of of purchases and whatnot. Like in other words, to say, oh, we wouldn't want to have a central bank digital currency because then it'd be the one institution that's can monitor all our transactions. And if you're, if you step out of line, they can just turn off your ability to access your funds. It's not that it's a bastion of laissez-faire anarcho-capitalism. If instead of that, there's a central bank and then there's 16 private banks underneath it and all the public banks with one of those 16 banks, that's, you know, in complete coordination with the central bank, like, you know, there it's kind of the same thing as long as all those individual banks are in line, you know, with the, with the, with the program, then, you know, they themselves know, okay, we got to play ball and, oh, this guy over here made this purchase. So we're not going to let him use his debit card anymore. And you can say, oh, but there's 15 competitors. But if they're all having the same policy, that's not, you know, so again, it, it's, it's a matter of degree, I suppose. Um, so given all that, then David, what, why, so you're, you're saying, yes, the fed now, is not really a central bank digital currency, and it doesn't even seem like it's a precursor to it because, if anything, if you were going to introduce a, a CBDC, this is kind of like a red herring. Or, you know, this is just you know something you wouldn't need anyway. It's not like that. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Is this, is this right that you're arguing if the ultimate goal in 12 years was to have a CBDC, doing Fed now, neither it, it doesn't even take us closer towards that? Like, if this really has nothing to do with it, is that? I, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I say it. I, I would say that it could have some implications here, but it, like in the in the like immediate now, like if we were to take it, like Fed now, I think it was just recently implemented. We don't suddenly have a central bank digital currency in America. That it has the ability, like all things do, because of course you know you have government institutions. They always have the power to become the worst thing possible. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say it's quite there yet. We still have a little bit more room to cut we got a little bit more wiggle room before we get to that to a cbdc okay and and again i i'm just trying to understand exactly what the what your concern is to relate it to the people who are worried um 
does does the introduction of Fed now make it easier for them to go to a CBDC or is it kind of like a lateral move? I, I think it's more a lateral move. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I think we're saying the same thing, just with slightly different yeah. terminology. Okay. So given that this really isn't about, in your view of, well, I just remember something else. I think, is it fair to say, David, that there is a connection in the sense that maybe what's going on, because this is an alternate theory I've seen people say, is that the reason they wanted to get this thing up and running was they don't want the public to go adopt genuinely private sector issued digital currencies. So not CBDCs, but private sector digital currencies, you know, including but not limited to Bitcoin, you know, for the the convenience and the ability of instant transfer. I mean, instant given once, you know, they they validate the block and so forth um, that. That, that so I, again, I've seen people say, "Oh, that's they realize." In other words, "Oh, we're lagging behind in the features that we're offering the public. We don't want them. We don't want the demand for the U.S. dollar system to go down, and people start going to alternatives in the private sector crypto. And so that's why we need to do this as a part of the campaign to demonize. Oh, crypto's for drug dealers and whatever. And it's unregulated. You want to stay with us? And say, hey, see, he, we, we have." immediate payments now too. So, you know, that's not a reason to stop playing with U.S. dollars. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. I mean, you see Powell talk a lot in, com- in not conferences, and when he's called before con- in congressional hearings, he talks a lot about how he thinks that the crypto market is unregulated and how it's dangerous and I think largely scams. You see the uh, Security Exchange Commission chair, Gary Gensler, I believe it's pronounced. Uh, he talks a lot about how he doesn't he he sees the crypto market as a very fraudulent. You see a lot of crackdowns on crypto and you uh, it, yeah. Powell has a little bit of a different view on Bitcoin, it seems like, where he kind of views it as a separate class of thing than crypto. I'd have to pull up an exact quote where he talks about that. Uh, but he there, there's definitely animosity uh, from the Fed towards things like uh, cryptocurrencies, towards so-called stable coins, you know, where they basically issue coins mm-hmm. that are supposed to be denominated in dollars. Uh, you're seeing a lot of crackdown, a lot of banks that ha- were, of course, hosting uh hosting things like tether uh the, how they're collapsing and you you see you see it's kind of like this kind of squeezing mechanism from the government or re- things related to the government in some way that are taking down the cryptocurrencies and private options for the dollar system that it also to kind of touch on like more private options um george selgin actually had a really great twitter thread the other day where he was talking about how there's uh, there's a company called the clearinghouse which is a collection of different banks and they already have a real-time payment option they mm-hmm. have something very similar to fed now uh but not all community banks can afford to get onto it um they of course because they charge fees the fed does charge fees as well uh but that you see that this is just a kind of like it's a concentrated real time payment system between a lot of the really big banks that we know of, you know, JP Morgan Chase, Citibank. You can fact check me on specific banks. Uh, but there's there are there were f- market options here. So it just seems like more of a consolidation of the Fed's power so they can have control over what transfers are going in and out and across banks. OK, yeah. And, and just as you were saying that, I was also looking up. I saw George um, and a quote me not leave out the co-author's name. Who is it? George and Aaron Klein have a, a Cato piece on this. Um, this was actually a while ago um, in 2020. This came out. So this Fed now system has been in consideration for a while. And one of the points they made there was that, as you were saying, Dave, this isn't 
some sci-fi thing. This is pretty standard stuff, and it's just that the Fed has been remarkably behind the curve on this, that apparently in the United Kingdom they had real-time payment processing as far back as 2007, right? And, and it was just that the Fed has been just sitting around and thinking about it and having internal discussions, and what should we do? And so that's probably another issue, too, that they, they bring up in there just for people to understand the, the issues is um, – just something simple like when you get your paycheck and you go deposit at your bank, it can sit there and take, you know, 48 hours in order for you to have access to your money, you know, as, as your bank is conferring to make sure that, you know, the, the paycheck is valid. And so he's saying for a lot of, you know, for a lot of people, that's just kind of a mild inconvenience. But if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're, you know, uh, part of the working poor, as they say, that can really pinch. And so a lot of people, that's why they turn to payday lenders. Because, you know, they have their paycheck, but and they got to go buy groceries and yet their funds aren't going to be available in their checking account for another two days. And so that's the um, so so Selgin and Klein in that piece were arguing that's one of the things that, you know, having a more immediate processing system would take care of is is that, you know, people will not have to turn these payday lenders charging very high rates of interest. Um, OK, so I think we're up to speed on that stuff, David. So given all that, you, I think, made the case that. Yeah, this isn't obviously these things can always be abused and whatnot, but in the immediate future, just looking at the thing, Fed now is not really it's certainly not a CBDC directly, and it doesn't even seem like it's necessarily paving the way. It's not like a Trojan horse necessarily. So but the title of your piece was it's not a CBDC, but it's still dangerous. So now, okay, so if somebody who wants to worry about Fed now and you're saying, Don't worry, it's not a CBDC, however, so what why should they worry about it? What what is the potential problem here? So the problem with 24-7-365 banking, at least, is that it it really – like if if we look at Silicon Valley Bank, Silicon Valley Bank lost $42 billion, if I'm remembering correctly, the exact number. It lost $42 billion in funds out of the bank in one day. And it wasn't that they had like long lines of people standing outside. It's that the people were transferring their money out online. Because the advent of online banking makes these hypothetical bank runs that much easier. You can use Mm. things like Zelle or you can use intermediaries like Venmo or you can transfer it to your cash app where you can get all all your money out of a bank a lot faster than you normally could. So when you make it a 24-7 system where you no longer – where you no longer have to wait for that, you know, nine to five – eight to five period to do so, then – it makes it a lot easier for these bank runs to happen even overnight. Like if Silicon Valley Bank hadn't closed at if, – if their online banking hadn't closed, if people could still make transfers after that 5 o'clock, I don't think that regulators could have gone in and saved them. Obviously save in that – bail sure. them out. Right, right, but right. Like you would, you would, you you could see exacerbated bank runs mm-hmm. as a result because pe- it could happen overnight, which means then you either have to – Get liquidity from the Federal Reserve at near maybe overnight. Say maybe it's like two in the morning. You have to go and get more liquidity from the Fed or Federal Reserve, or get an overnight loan from another bank. Which means that all these banks are also going to have to hire more twenty four seven employees to more monitor this situation. So it really exacerbates the threat of bank runs, which isn't helpful for the banks. It might like from an like an austro libertarian perspective, we might say, oh well, a bank run, of course, you know, is a check on fractional reserve banking and credit expansion, right? But it, it does have that threat to the bank. So if you're looking at it from the Federal Reserve's point of view, then you might think, oh, well, this could create more problems for us down the road. 
Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to remember because now it was several months ago at this point. Right. But yeah, I think you're right that it, the SVB stuff, like stuff really started going down. It was like a Thursday and a Friday and there were tons of withdrawals. And then like you say, then there was the weekend when, in which presumably all the federal regulators and other people were having huddles to figure out what the heck are we going to do Monday morning when this thing reopens to get a plan in place. And not that SVP ended up fine, but they did come up with a quote rescue plan and, you know, give, give options to the existing depositors. And so your point is that, you know, if, if they hadn't had that weekend breathing room, it's possible that the, you know, the, the crisis would have been even intensified. Um, yeah. So yeah, why don't we just unpack that a little bit? Cause I, I know, you know, you're, you're trying not to be misunderstood and, from, yes, from an Austrian liberty. All right. So in terms of fractional reserve banking, just make sure we're not leaving anybody behind in the audience here that, yeah, the reason, quote, bank runs are possible is that there is a sense which you put your money on deposit with the bank. It's in a checking account called a demand deposit account. So in principle, you should be able to withdraw that money on demand. And yet they go and lend that out to other people. It looks like they go buy a car. Maybe it's you know part of a mortgage or something. And so a lot of that money, in a sense, the bank is borrowing short and lending long. And that's why if everybody shows up on Tuesday to take their money out, or in this case now on Saturday <laughs> to take their money out, even electronically, um, the bank gets caught with its pants down and that's that's the end of the game and, and that's the problem. So uh, you're right. I mean, I think just like in a sense, FDR, quote, solved the bank run problem by having a bank holiday. Back in the, you know, the 1930s, that's obviously not something standard libertarians would have endorsed and say, oh, well, that was at least a good thing because it prevented the banking system. You know, Normally, they would just say, well, no, there's this festering problem, and FDR came in and kind of rescued the banks from their own foolish decisions. So I guess, um, yeah, why don't we just talk about that for a little bit? Um, I guess, are you saying it's not so much that in the grand scheme it, it would necessarily be a bad thing, but your point is just let's go in with eyes open that this fed now assistant may allow for what the next time there is a panic and the public gets worried about their money. Once this system is up and running and most banks are participating in it, bank runs are going to be even, even faster that like any, any suspect bank is going to have all of its funds. Cause you can even imagine too, like there'll be websites saying like, is my bank safe? And it's just going to focus it. And as soon as now any rumor spreads about a particular bank, and a run starts, it's not going to be, oh, we lost 15% of our deposits overnight. It's going to be, we got cleaned out. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. So like if it's more of like, look at it from Jerome Powell's perspective, where your job is to maintain some stability in the banking system. We might view it like, hey, his job is there to, you know, keep the cabal going, keep that, keep the cartel that is fractional reserve banks together. So if you're looking at it from Jerome Powell's perspective, then Fed now could very well have that effect, that it could be dangerous towards maintaining a, a, support, a supposed stability of the banking system, um, which also becomes accentuated further with the abolishment of reserve requirements. Because early in the, in the COVID pandemic lockdowns, they completely abolished reserve requirements. It, they're now they're functionally zero. They've functionally they've probably retired it in favor of like, you know, interest on reserves is more that keep a floor uh, hoping. But banks don't legally have to hold any of their deposits right now. Like they don't have to have any of the money that you would put in a demand deposit at the bank. 
obviously they they probably do still have money in there because I don't think any bank is going to think, oh, nobody's going to come and withdraw cash on any given day. But it without having adequate reserves to meet demand, then you get, oh, people show up to the bank, they can't get their money, everyone else starts rushing to their banks, and then all of a sudden overnight, it starts to spiral and everyone gets their money out of their banks and you get a worsened bank run because you don't have one of these FDR bank holidays. Yeah, yeah. Um, just to elaborate on some of the points David raised there for folks who don't know, yes, and this is all spelled out, everybody, in my book, Understanding Money Mechanics that the Mises Institute puts out and you will put links in the show notes page. You can get the PDF for free. Um, no need to send an instant payment to the Mises Institute. Uh, yes. Uh, th- so for a long time, you know, there were official reserve requirements. Loosely speaking, people say about 10% where if you gave a thousand dollars to the bank, you know, in physical pieces, green pieces of paper, they put it in your checking account. They could only, they had to keep a hundred of it, give or take on reserve either you know cash in their vault or reserves that that bank itself ha- held at the fed and now as like you say david um i don't remember if it was maybe april or so of 2020 the f- what i think it was 2020 yeah they 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 phased it out so yes it was under the the cover of the covid crisis now what the reason that move at that moment didn't have any significant impact is because since the financial crisis of 2008 with all the rounds of QE and that the commercial banks were very skittish because of all the defaults on mortgages, you know, going up into that banks had were flush with reserves, right? In other words, like if you looked at what the excess reserves were in the banking system, they went, had gone through the roof from like two, that late 2008 onward. And so they held, in other words, the, um, the reserve requirement was not a binding constraint from 2008 forward. And so the fact that the fed relaxed that in 2020 didn't change anything. It's not like all of a sudden it opened up new lending because the bank still had plenty of margin. They could have made loans anyway, legally without that when that constraint was still in there. But I I do agree with you, Dave, there must've been a reason they did that. And there's no reason to believe what they said. The official reason was. And so I think, yeah, down the road, assuming the banking system ever did go back towards a more, historically normal arrangement where the banks, you know, were lending out most of the reserves in order to get interest from their clients, um, that that's that, that the lack of that constraint will, will, will matter at that point. And so you're, I see what you're saying that that now coupled with this instantaneous ability to transfer funds out of your institution, if you're just part of the public, that that could exacerbate, um, bank crises in the future. So just, uh, the systemic problem, you know, Rothbardian would say is fractional reserve banking and the Federal Reserve with the FDIC and all these other things. We needed to get rid of that stuff. And then, you know, the banking system would go back towards what would be a more robust structure. But still, I mean, it, it's kind of like, Dave, I don't know how you come down to this analogy, but, you know, people talking about, hey, let's, uh, you know, defund the police. There's a certain sense from like an, a high level Rothbardian perspective where, yeah, in an ideal world, there'd be no government funding of anything, no taxation. And so the police would not get government a government budget, but yet you could also see how in the real world right now, if you kept everything else the same way and just turned off this one thing, well, then, you know, you could see people saying that's going to lead to problems over the next two years. Maybe it's good in the long run, but right now, you know, so likewise with this, maybe in the long run, when the banks learn, uh oh, the jig is up, we got to have more higher reserves, that'll be good for everybody. But 
you know, if there's a lot of bank runs and collapses in the next two years, that could be a problem. Yeah, it could be a problem. And I think that the kind of emphasis has to be placed on like how they've changed essentially have holding reserves and that and how they really changed like the federal funds rate and how that used to work is that nowadays it's more of like they pay interest on reserves. So that way you're more incentivized as a bank to hold your money at the Fed. And so that way you hold on to it and you charge. Why would you give out money to what, say say your bank, say say there's the Murphy Bank. And I'm the Bra- I have the Brady Bank, and I'm running low, and you're running low on reserves. Why would I loan money to you at say four percent if the federal funds right? If the interest on reserves is five percent, I could I could just park that money at the Fed and get that interest. So instead, I'm going to hold on to that, and so I have to you you would have to at, pay a higher interest rate, right, on getting an overnight loan, so that way you can meet your demand your your demand deposit requirements. Um, but and then. Uh, I don't know if analogy helps at all because, like, the the way it kind of used to work, right, is that the open market operations where they would buy and sell securities from primary dealers to kind of either add reserves to those to those institutions or take away the reserves by buying and selling those. So it's kind of like I don't know if you're familiar with the game Flappy Bird, where you kind of start in the middle of the screen and you just your your goal in the game is to keep tapping the screen to make the bird go up and down mm-hmm. through these little in between little pipes. I know it's an odd game, but that was kind of how they navigated it in the old way. And now it's functionally more like, you know, like little dinosaur game that you get on Google where you have to just hop where you you have this base level that you're always on. And that base level is going to be your interest on reserves. <laughs> So I am familiar with neither of those games, uh, so I can't say whether it's a good analogy or not. But maybe it, it'll you'll connected with the the uh, some of the listeners. Um, okay, yeah. Just to underscore what you're saying, and that you're right. That is a good point that I had alluded to earlier. The fact that historically excess reserves were close to zero, and again, folks, excess reserves being defined as saying in the banking system, do they hold reserves? Meaning, and a reserve is cash in the vault or deposits that the bank itself holds with its own account at the Fed, were the reserves above the legally required minimum reserve requirements, you know, in terms of the, you know, that, that statute or regulation. And so typically that number in the aggregate was close to zero, you know, from whatever 1960s onward up until the 2008 financial crisis, at which point the excess reserves shoot way up. And you're, you're right, Dave, another, structural change they made to the system is that in October of 2008, the Fed started paying interest on reserves. So up till then, if a bank kept its reserves parked at the Fed, just like having cash in the vault, I mean, that was a good thing to have in case customers showed up and wanted their money, but um, you weren't earning any interest on that, right? So that was kind of the trade off the bank's face that they said, oh, if we make, if we lend this out, we can earn interest on it, assuming, you know, that we run the numbers and we uh, accurately assess credit risk and we don't just lend too much of it out to people who default. So if we're earning money in the aggregate on this portfolio of loans we make, that's the benefit of that. But then the downside is if we lend too much, our available reserves plummet. And then when people show up just wanting their money or if they write checks to somebody else who banks at a different bank and then after the clearing operations, we owe a net payment to that other bank that comes out of our reserves. And so that that's the kind of thing the banks had to worry about. So now, as you say, David, that the, what the Fed started doing in October 2008 was saying to the banks, keep your reserves parked with us and we'll pay you an interest rate 
And then over time now, when the Fed wants to, quote, raise rates, that's the primary method of achieving that is they just bump up the interest they pay to banks to keep reserves parked at the Fed. And then obviously, since that's completely safe, any other interest rate's going to have to be higher than that. Otherwise, you know, the banks, it's obvious they would just keep their money with the Fed. Among other things, I used to tell people when I was going around giving talks, because as you can imagine, David, after the financial crisis, economists were in high demand and people want to know what the heck just happened. And so I would be going through a PowerPoint slide. And that's partly what I would say right there that, yeah, they're telling you how it, it pains us to bail out Wall Street, but we're doing it to save Main Street. We've got to keep credit flowing. And at the same time, we've just started this new policy of paying banks to not make loans to their customers, which is one way of thinking about what the interest on reserves was. So, um, yeah, a lot of interplaying things there. Another element, I don't know if this was on your radar, David. I saw some people when I was reading commentary on this Fed now, they're complaining that as of the article I just read, there were like 35 institutions that had applied for and been you know, accepted into this new program. But one of them was a foreign bank. And so I saw some people grumbling, like, like they, the article I read quoted Caitlin Long, who's had a lot of trouble getting her own bank except getting a Fed master account. Um, and she's a domestic you know, institution in the United States. And so complaining that you know, this is kind of crazy where the Fed is sort of picking winners and losers and playing favorites. And you know, you've got this infrastructure, and yet there are private sector banks that for whatever reason, the Fed doesn't like their politics, let's say. And so, oh, you can't, you can't participate in these new systems. So I suppose, you know, when we say what's the danger with Fed now, it depends what we're comparing it to. If we're comparing it to a laissez-faire open entry system, clearly just, you know, having the Federal Reserve system in place with this ability to exclude people from the payments processing stream, that's, you know, that's an issue too, right? It's just another lever by which they can sort of control what goes on. Yeah, it was actually a Caitlin Long interview that kind of inspired the whole article and idea. It was her talking to somebody at Reason about talking about Custodia Bank and everything. And I, I wasn't really aware. I, I last I checked, I thought I saw like fifty-seven were early adopters of the system, which is by means not every bank in the United States. I think there's maybe five thousand now. Some, some yeah, it's, it's, a big it's smaller than it once was. Yeah, so that that's something too that I. The U.S. folks, in case you don't know, has a lot of banks compared to other countries that, you know, just our structure. Like there's a, a tradition in the United States of, you know, being wary of the centralization of power. And so I think even, you know, per capita that that still goes to obviously the absolute numbers because we have more population than most countries. But even per capita, I think that's the case. Um, and this ties into, like, for example, what happened in the Great Depression. It's just as we're talking about banks, why not mention this little factoid? that when there were lots of bank failures in the U.S., there were relatively few in Canada. And partly what happened was because in Canada, they had more larger institutions, just had branches all over the place, you know, different provinces. Whereas in the U.S. at the time, they had these laws against branch banking. And so if you had some local bank somewhere where there were a bunch of farmers in the area and their crop, you know, their harvest failed, then that bank would go down because it, you know, it was just, that's what all of its, you know, uh, assets and liabilities were all concentrated just in that one region as opposed to being part of a broader bank that spans several states. So, um, yeah. Okay. So maybe, maybe you saw more recent now, maybe the article you read was more recent, but, uh, it is, yeah, still, uh, it is infancy, I guess, just this program. And, and that, I guess that's, that was partly the complaint that I saw is it's not just a perfunctory, here's the application. There you go. Now you're part of fed now, but apparently, you know, they can hold things up. 
Well, well, part of the thing is that you have to have a master account at the Fed. So say like the Mises Institute had its own little bank in Auburn, right? It wouldn't if, if it's not large enough to qualify for a Fed master account and to get one like Custodia Bank was denied a Fed master account that it would not be able to get access to that. They they theoretically are talking about, I, I would have to look a little bit more into it, uh, how they're talking about maybe how you could partner with a larger institution, say J.P. Morgan Chase, which is one of those banks that has already signed on them, Wells Fargo, quite a few other like large banks. You would How you could sign on with them to get access to the FedNow system. And then you also have the option, you could just be a depository, depository institution in, for Fed now, so that way you could receive funds, but you don't, you do not issue any funds through the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, an- another one too. So, so thanks, yeah, for the added clarity about you know Custodia Bank not getting a, a um, approved for their Fed Master account. It was also the Narrow Bank, the, the TN. It was it goes by the initials TNB, and that was I think it was out of Connecticut. It was you know state chartered bank and everything. And the reason they called it the Narrow Bank is all they were going to do is accept deposits. And it wasn't even from Joe Sixpack. It was like from other institutional clients would be the customers of this thing called the narrow bank. And they would just accept their deposits. And then they would have a master account with the fed and just park the money there. So the narrow bank wasn't making loans or anything like that. That's, that's what the term meant. They're saying we're engaged in narrow banking, meaning just the pure function of being like a, a money warehouse. And, and, and and they thought this is a no-brainer. Everybody should like this, right? Because our funds are going to be 100% in the vault, right? So there's no bank run possible. So institutions that are worried about, the, you know, they're not so much concerned about yield, but they want to be, you know, sure that their money is there. They can come bank with us. And so doesn't that solve the problem? And you're giving the public more choices, right? That if you want to have, earn a higher interest rate on your checking account, go with a bank that you know lends out, whatever 90% or whatever the number is going to end up being of the funds to somebody else, but you pass along the interest to me and I'm just going to take the gamble. that it's not in, you know, and I got FDIC and whatever in a, in a bad scenario, or if no, I want to make sure my money is there. I don't care about uh, getting a, you know, a return park it here. And, and the reason I'm stressing that is because this is something that happened um, when Silicon Valley bank went down is, you know, the, a lot of the commentary and I was guilty of this myself, made it sound like, Oh, it's just, these these high flying tech companies that had you know no real uh, cash flow to speak of, and they were just talking about projects that oh yeah, ten years from now we're going to have anti gravity hoverboards and stuff, and that's why we, you know with zero percent interest rates we'll get funding. And then when interest rates went up, you know a lot of their uh, clients got into trouble. But there were um, like schools coming forward, you know, giving a statements to the press saying we had our payroll on deposit with Silicon Valley bank just for whatever reason. And now we can't pay our teachers as this, you know, eventually obviously it got worked out, but at the time when this was first a thing and people didn't know what the status of their deposits was going to be, that was some of the, you know, some of these horror stories were emerging and, you know, the average person, Oh, yep. There's capitalism for you. But of course, Roth Barty was saying, no, see, there is a market demand for checking accounts that really are hundred percent reserve. And they don't, it's not that the, the teacher's payroll, they wanted to put it somewhere to get a nice yield. It was just, we need to park it somewhere because people get paid electronically. It's not that, you know, we're going to give them bags of, of cash every two weeks. And so that's, um, you know, that was, that was part of the issue. And so this narrow bank 
you know, for that type of thing, we're saying, yeah, surely there's a demand for that, but the Fed would not give them a master account. You know, and it was like they, the the people running the narrow bank actually brought a lawsuit against the Fed, and they, you know, that didn't go anywhere. I don't I don't remember the exact status of what happened with that, but the point being, it was supposed to be just a standard. Yep, here you go. Here's the form you fill out. Within two weeks, you should be up and running. And they just dragged that on for years, and they still hadn't given it to. It. And so, you know, cynics say it's because the Fed realized if we give this narrow bank this account with us they're going to end up passing through most of the interest on reserves that we pay to like JP Morgan and whatever, just to their clients. Cause they're just you know, going to be like a pass through, take a little bit for their overhead. And so everybody is going to end up switching their accounts over to them. And the other banks don't want that to happen. And so that's why they lobbied behind the scenes to tell the fed, no, don't, don't let them get their foot in the door with this thing. So we can't prove that. I don't know that, but, I'm just saying that's what I read the commentary to explain why is the Fed not letting this bank do it? Because again, it would be safer than any other bank. There's, it's not like it poses a systemic risk. It would be completely safe. And all it was going to do was take money and park it at the Fed. And the Fed was like, no, 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 we're not going to let you do that. So, um, yeah. okay. Well, in the time we got left here, Dave, would you, I understand you're at Mises University right now. So for those, who don't know what that is, can you just give a little uh, explainer as to what your experience has been so far? So, and to put it short, to, to make it really short, it's the best week of the year. To give a little bit of a longer explanation, uh, Mises University is a program put on by the Mises Institute every summer. I think usually around the same time, I think, that week-long period. Uh, like I think the last week of July, typically, where they bring in lecturers of the uh, Austrian economists to give lectures on the various topics and give opinion lectures on the like uh, about Austrian economics and Austro-libertarian tradition and the like. And you get lots of students flocking here from all over the country, even internationally. I've met a few kids from Brazil. I've met a few from Britain even. And you get all sorts of students, college students mostly, even a few high school students all flocking here to get the best little week-long education that you can get on the praxeological method. Yeah, yeah, it really is amazing. And I, I used to joke saying to people, you know, I'm sure you're thinking, oh, do I want to spend a week of my summer down in Auburn, Alabama at the middle or end of July? That sounds awful talking about economics. But yes, you do. You want to spend a week of your summer in uh, in the middle or end of July down in Auburn, Alabama, talking about Austrian economics. It's amazing. Um, also, you're part of what's called the what, apprenticeship program. Yeah. So Can you explain? Because that's relatively new. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah. So the Mises Apprenticeship Program is a program where myself and I think four others, where we kind of do social media content, we do create videos, write articles. Essentially, our job is really to go out there and kind of spread the Austro-Libertarian tradition and the likes of Mises and Rothbard and even Hans-Hermann Hoppe, where you, we're, we're, we're going out there and we're propagating it. Like if you were to go to the Instagram page for Mises, then you would go and find a lot of videos of me and the other apprentices going around interviewing our fellow students, some of the staff, getting to show you around the Institute and letting you know what an experience is like at Mises U. 
Otherwise, they also we also do our own other little content. I know one of the other apprentices, Jess, she does a lot of like on the street content where she goes and talks to people and asks them questions to kind of like gauge their thinking about like Austrian libertarian kind of like thinking. And you get all sorts of things. I just had, of course, that article published, mm-hmm. the one that you saw. And there's a there, we do a lot of stuff. It's basically we're out here to kind of propagate the idea so that way they're hopefully better known to the wider world. Okay, well, it's very exciting stuff, and I, I'm sure uh, everyone appreciates your efforts down there. So, folks, our guest this week has been David Brady. David, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. And, folks, so David's article on why FedNow is not a CBDC but is still dangerous, of course, we'll link to that at the show notes page, plus a few of these other things we alluded to. With all of that said, thank you for your attention, and we will see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.